0: Welcome on in to the Superintendent Radio Network and episode 21 of Greens with Envy. I'm Matt Lowell, managing editor of Golf Course Industry Magazine, joined today, as always, by the magazine's editor-in-chief, Guy Cipriano. Greens with Envy, our monthly dive into where we've been, who we've seen, who we've talked with. And this is a jam-packed five-course month i think all of them guy who was on the road i was just here in ohio so guy welcome on into master's week how you doing what's going on doing great matt
1: thanks for holding it down here in ohio and did anyone else notice that popping noise at the beginning of the podcast i don't know what you're talking about greens with envy has turned 21 and we're
0: celebrating in the podcast studio with an eight month old beer that has been left over in the company fridge I Neither think. of us are going to drink it. It was just a prop for the podcast. Anyway, it is Masters Week down in Georgia. The rare, and probably only in our lifetimes, November Masters. We all know why it's in November. We don't need to dive into the details about November. It will clearly be a very different Augusta National Golf Club. And we will not so much cover the tournament, because the, the course obviously is very secretive. But I do have an interesting story that you will see online about something else that's going on in the world of golf in Augusta, Georgia. That'll be up later this week. And if you don't read it online, golfcourseindustry.com, you can check it out in our fast and firm email newsletter. This will be a good story. This will hit home with a lot of folks. Great timing, perfect timing uh, with the tournament and Veterans Day coming up this week as well. Uh, It's been a lot of fun reporting it and should be a lot of fun for folks to read it. Before we dive into where Guy has been in West Virginia and Pennsylvania, a quick reminder, our State of the Industry 2021 survey will be arriving in inboxes as soon as this week, certainly by next week. If you are one of the thousands of folks in this industry randomly selected to receive it, do take just a few minutes, fill those questions out, it really helps us kind of get a barometer for where everything is there will be a lot of interesting questions on that survey beyond just the benchmarks that we ask every year guy i'm looking forward to a lot of these responses it's a hugely important state of the industry survey please fill it out
1: obviously a lot has happened this year there's a lot of questions surrounding next year this is your opportunity to provide comparative year-over-year data and suggestions about how you're retaining golfers and employees that can really help a lot of people out. So, just fill it out if you get it. It's, it takes five to seven minutes. It's just over 30 questions. We've really simplified it. We're working with Signet Research, which is a great group. Uh, second straight year, we've partnered with them on the project. And a donation for every completed response will go to the We One Foundation. So you're also helping out. Uh, something that's near and dear to many superintendents.
0: And we don't sell the information that we receive, so there is a certain sense of anonymity. We will only follow up with you on more questions if you indicate that you want to be contacted after filling out the survey. So don't feel like you have to take it, but if you're doing it for purposes of staying in the background, you can take it and not have your name out there. That's perfectly fine. All right, let's go on to the first of two states Guy has visited since our last edition of Greens with Envy, and that is maybe your favorite state, West Virginia. You were there for three courses, which we will get to in a sec, but you were also down there to speak for the second straight year at the West Virginia GCSA Turfgrass Conference. I had a chance to look at your PowerPoint presentation before you went down there. A lot of slides familiar to regular golf course industry readers. It's been a challenging but ultimately, record setting year for so many courses. And really, 2021 could be even bigger and even more important than 2020 turned out to be.
1: It was great to get to an in person event. This was the first conference I'd been to since the New England Regional Turfgrass Foundation show in early March. A second straight year in Morgantown for the conference. A great group. Uh, Executive Director Amber Breed does a great job. Uh, current and past presidents Bobby Klein and Jason Holland. Uh, were obviously there in a key part of this thing. Uh, They pulled their members, and their members wanted to go in person. And it made me realize just how valuable face-to-face contact is in the golf industry. We've been doing some things from afar in terms of education and conferences. And, yeah, you can get the information that way. You can do the educational aspect. But that's only a small part of why you go to an industry event. Uh, Most superintendents will tell you the number one reason they go to these things anymore is to see others in the industry and to bounce ideas off their peers and to have those informal hallway conversations and lunch conversations and trade show conversations and this was a very manageable uh, event to to go in person it was around 50 people uh, the rooms were pretty big at Lakeview resort you know people were wearing masks besides when they were eating it was very well run uh, the first like five to ten minutes you're there it's a bit awkward you're not sure if you should fist bump somebody give them the uh, the shoulder tap wave shake hands and that, that's a little uh, odd still just how you introduce yourself to people and then y- you wanted to make sure that everybody was comfortable with being near each other but then once you got past uh, that, that five to ten minute period it really felt like just uh, being in an industry event again and there was a lot of catching up to do because some of these people you've not seen for 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 months or even a year and there was a great exchange of information uh the conference presentations some were virtual like the the, the people who work for universities the researchers and turf grass lab diagnostic people and the phds can't travel right now universities are really strict with uh where where their employees are going but then there were some people like myself who were able to go in person so it was really a a a hybrid model Uh, you could tell that there was definitely more engagement and interest in the room when it was a person uh standing there and speaking in front of them instead of something coming over a projector or somebody uh presenting from afar but you know just a just a wonderful job by the West Virginia GCSA to to get this going and have it in person again. And there were a lot of great ideas exchanged. And I know I've come back with a a, a notebook page full of story ideas just from some of the conversations I had with people and some of the things I was hearing in the, the presentations. And yeah, I got to present in the afternoon about two and a half hours after lunch. It's always an interesting time to go up there in front of people. We tried our best to keep our engagement. Hopefully that, the audience found it uh, valuable, and basically uh, my, my presentation was 2020, colon, golf's greatest moment, question mark, and what's next. I wrote a column earlier this year explaining why 2020 might be the, the greatest – Year in golf history. Usually, when we think of great years in golf, we think of things like 1930, Bobby Jones winning the Grand Slam, mm-hmm. 1945, Byron Nelson winning 11 tournaments in a row, mm-hmm. including and, and ran, won 18 overall, Ben Hogan 1953, winning all five tournaments he en- entered and three majors, and then Tiger Woods in 2000 winning uh three majors. We think of those as the greatest seasons in golf history, but I would argue that maybe 2020. Uh, what happened was much greater than what any single champion could do. And then there, there are also a lot of questions. Yeah, it, rounds are up, but there, are, there are a lot of concerns going into next year with revenue projections and and what what is the labor situation going to be? I really think the the biggest challenge our superintendent, uh, our readers, uh, which are primarily golf course superintendents, are going to face is: Do you get to begin the the peak season in twenty twenty one with your projected twenty twenty labor? Totals, or are your owners and operators and members going to see? Hey, you know, we we scaled back on the crew in 2020. Golf course conditions were still excellent, and we were getting all this play. What's the point of going back to what the projected labor was going to be? Uh, Or, but that's not healthy for anyone. Uh, There are some incredible feats being achieved by superintendents and assistant superintendents and equipment technicians and the hourly employees that have been around all this year. And if you go into next year. With that, that same number of personnel, I think you're really going to create some long-term damages. It's really important for superintendents and, and clubs to realize that they need to get to the projected 2020 labor levels. You just can't. Be producing this high-level product that's enjoyed by so many people with, you know, fifty to sixty percent of the the labor hours that you thought re- you were going to have. That's just not long-term sustainable. Maybe financially it's sustainable, but it's not sustainable to the health and sanity of the, the people that work in the business. And I, I we discussed that and uh, offered some uh, labor retention strategies that are working. But you, you would think that with unemployment going up this year, that maybe things would get better for for the golf industry. But it's gotten worse. And you know, most of the facilities I'm visiting and most of the readers I'm
0: speaking to are in a tougher labor situation now than they were when 2020 even started. So much to unpack from that. I feel like you were giving the Cliff notes version of your presentation. There yeah, we don't need second. to go on the whole thing. Hopefully <laughs> we get a chance to, to give it at some other events because yeah. we really
1: do have a template for, for a nice presentation, Meant that either you, you or I could use as we move forward
0: and talk to more groups uh, at the end of 2020 and into the first part of 2021. Right. But your first live event not just a course visit in almost exactly eight months. I think your last visit was, or your last trip was for the new England show Mm -hmm. in early March, which right before everything started, you said you had a notebook page full of ideas without giving away too much. What were folks talking about at the West Virginia conference that, that really jumped out at you? Their first get together face to face really since early spring, late winter.
1: Uh, Labor is one. I mean, everybody was exchanging ideas about uh, finding and retaining people to work on the the golf course. That's one that's definitely been talked about. Uh, there been there were discussions about you know assistants and moving either moving them on to head jobs or working with the ones that you've had for a long time. There's really uh, you know two sc- schools of thought, right? Do you want to move one of your assistants on to a head job as quick as possible, or do you want to Keep that assistant for a few years, and even we've seen ones where you know it's been a decade or more at the same superintendent and assistant superintendent combination so there are different ways to make it work in that type of relationship there was a presentation on uh plant first versus pest first thinking i'm not even going to wade into the politics and some of the uh (laughs) sensitivities in that one i I, that could be a real rabbit hole here on this podcast so those were some of the things that people were talking about uh people were talking about uh you know safety and how how they manage their crew through the season and also uh people were wondering how long is this wave of crazy play gonna last are people gonna be playing golf until they physically just can't get on the course because of frost in the mid-atlantic and northeast and who knows maybe we'll have a mild winter and and there'll be some crazy play numbers in november december january and february up north
0: well it was in the 70s here in northeast ohio this weekend and across a lot of the midwest northeast just as nice and it is not going to be cold at all the next couple of weeks so these seasons are are extending for sure
1: well matt and i put this in the presentation and here's mm-hmm. what a lot of people are forgetting when you assess 2020 is that uh nationally in january and february rounds were up over 10 percent across mm-hmm. the country and there were a couple reasons for this i mean we were in palm beach florida in mid-january and how crowded it was the palm beach par three and some of the other golf courses down there i mean the snowbird play was
0: just just Crazy the first two months of this year. The parking lot was full. We had to park down the street at a tennis facility to, to park there. Yeah, it was a good sign. And I what- saw the
1: same thing at Innisbrook Resort when I was there in February. And then uh, in the cool weather areas, like you know West Virginia, where I was at, I mean, there were courses that did record Januarys and Februarys just because the weather was so warm. So the the season was really before we got the March. If you look at a lot of different regions in the country, the play numbers were pretty significantly up from 2019 in the first two months of 2020, and that's something that's kind of lost
0: in the whole story of this year. Well, and the last point before we get into a lot of the courses that you visited in the last couple of weeks is important to not overlook equipment sales, and we don't normally post news releases or news items about the retail side of the industry, but the numbers for the third quarter were just stunning. It was the second quarter ever, and the first since 2008, where quarterly equipment sales topped a billion dollars. And that, I think, is an important sign looking forward because you have all these either new golfers or golfers who are spending more time on the courses. If you collectively, as an industry of consumers, all golfers on the whole, if you spend a billion dollars on new equipment in three months, you're not going to let it go sit in the trunk of your car or in the corner of your garage and not use it. That equipment is going to get used. People are going to have the itch. They're going to get out for more rounds if they can, whenever they can. And I know it's just one little indicator, but I feel like equipment sales could be a tell for an increased or a continued increase in rounds played year over year.
1: It's just not golf. I mean, bike sales. Oh, RVs can do everything. Bike sales, and I put this in the presentation in the month of – June uh, 2020 were 60% higher than June of 2019. Paddle sports sales, which is Mm -hmm. near and dear to me, uh, over 50% more uh, kayaks and canoes and equipment for those were sold in June of 2020 compared to June of 2019. And camping equipment and sales, it was uh, 30% higher in June of 2020 compared to June of 2019. So we might be seeing a societal shift, and this is kind of a maybe a Podcast for another time, where people are going from spectating and sitting around to doing. And if they're investing, you you bring up a great point. If you're buying a, you know, golf bags are leading the the have had the mm-hmm. biggest year over year increase in sales. If you're spending two hundred bucks on a golf bag, yeah, you're probably not doing that for something that you're just going to use for two months. When some of the things that you did previously were were closed, the uh, the second uh, biggest golf equipment. Uh, sales increase over last year were were wedges. So maybe golfers are getting <laughs> smart, too, and they're practicing the shots 100 yards in or putting more emphasis in, on the shots that are 100 yards in instead of uh, worrying about smashing uh, Bryson-length drives.
0: Mm. On to a lot of the courses that you visited. And again, there are five, so we won't spend a huge amount of time on all of them.
1: Oh, we could spend a whole podcast on all these courses. They are fabulous well, places. Yeah, and,
0: and we can certainly dive back in. To greater detail on these but just an, an overview talk about them as much or as little as you want let's start with the West Virginia portion because that's most recent it's fresh in your head we were just talking about the West Virginia GCSA turfgrass conference your first stop down there was with a regular contributor to golf course industry he's been in I think the last two turf heads takeovers and he's going to be in this year's as well coming up in December Jason Holland uh, you can find him on Twitter at almost heaven golf heaven H E A V N almost heaven golf, uh, Jason, at Stonewall Resort. Not your first trip there, I don't think, right? It was my
1: first trip there. It was there. your first trip. It felt like I was probably in a version of what heaven looks like. Uh, <laughs> Jason is a big-time golf course industry supporter. He he supports a lot of the the publications and other things going on in the industry. He's the director of golf courses and grounds at Stonewall Resort, which is between Morgantown and Charleston in the in – the, uh, North Central part of the state, I guess I would classify it. And Stonewall Resort is close to 2,000 acres. It's a West Virginia state park, but it's operated by a management company. And And Jason not only oversees the golf course, which is an awesome early 2000s Arnold Palmer design he also oversees the whole ground so his team is in, in charge of maintaining the campgrounds and the, the the resort common areas and they have a fireworks field across the lake from the resort so a big 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 responsibility uh the, the 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 golf course is just just fabulous uh you really do feel like you're you're in a state park there are no homes along the golf course and it kind of has different feels i mean the, the first second and 18th hole holes are kind of up by the clubhouse, which is a golf house that sits on a hill overlooking the entire resort. And then the 4th, 5th, 6th, and 7th holes are on a peninsula by Stonewall Lake, which is a, a man-made lake by the Army Corps of Engineers. It was a flood control project in the early uh, 1990s. That's how the whole thing got rolling. And then you, the 8th through the 17th hole, you just feel like you're just in the this natural, like just super scenic, Park area, uh, three of the holes are what Jason described as "up the holler." You want to know what "up the up the holler" means?
0: I have no idea what up kind of
1: holes. It just look like like it sounds holes that look like they just perfectly sit in a valley and just shoot right right through the mountain. So there are three holes like that on the golf course: the ninth, twelfth, and fourteenth. Uh, there there is uh, a par three number sixteen with uh, a seventy foot elevation change, and that leads into the seventeenth hole, which plays over some natural wetlands areas and there's a tree in the middle of the the wetlands area and everyone's like why why has this tree not been removed well it's called the ghost tree and there's a fabulous story behind it there was some argument about what to do with it when constructing the, the golf course and ultimately uh arnold palmer whose name is on the course uh his design firm did it uh sort of had the ultimate say It stays, and there are people that love the tree. There are people that hate the tree. I think once you go on the website and they have a great video about why the tree is there, I think once you see the video, you're like, okay, I can live with that tree being in that spot and Mm. maybe impeding my, my second shot. And then there's also a great video on the Stonewall Resort website uh, that they use for marketing purposes that features Jason and his golf course maintenance team. And you see that video and you see them working in this natural surrounding, and it just, just gets you fired up to, to be there. I mean, that's great to use the superintendent in your marketing campaign, especially someone like J- Jason, who described himself as a golf guy. So they're different reasons people get into the business, right? I mentioned this to you today. You might have some people in it because they love maintaining turf grass. You might have some people in it because they like the business aspect of it. You might have some people in it because they view themselves is an environmentalist or a resource manager. And then you have some people that are in it because they love golf. And Jason's in it because he loves golf. Uh, he's a native West Virginian. He worked golf course construction. He's worked for some architects. He's, he's lived in different parts of the country. But, but West Virginia is his home, and he came home, uh, I think it was 11 years ago, maybe 12 years ago, for this job at Stonewall Resort. And, um, yeah, he gets to work on an awesome golf course in a state park every day. I mean, how, how cool would that be?
0: You list off a lot of the reasons folks get into the industry and getting into careers as superintendents or agronomy directors, but how many other superintendents, and there are some, I'm not saying there aren't any, but how many other superintendents have you come across in your many, many travels over the last six or seven years who are actively involved in marketing the course where they work? It's getting better. Uh, It's becoming more and
1: more frequent, I think, as the industry evolves, the role of the superintendent evolves, and it's always been a prominent role at Golf Course, but I think superintendents feel more comfortable uh, being seen by uh, members or, or guests or customers or even on video. And that's that's the GCSAA has done some great mm-hmm. work promoting that aspect of it and, and getting their superintendents front and, and, and center. So that's one of the, the, the big differences between Even when I started a golf course industry in 2014 and now is that superintendents feel much more comfortable being a a key part of the story because they are – at most golf facilities, you can make the argument they're the most important employee. And Mm -hmm. it's great to see when people like Jason Holland are in marketing videos for their their facility and hopefully hopefully we see more and more of it because uh, you just see people – Images of people in the morning with with the sun rising and the, and the dew on the course and mowers going out and cutting cups and if you're a, if you're a golfer how does that not get you fired up to, to visit that place I know uh, two days before I went down to West Virginia I was I was doing my research for Stonewall Resort and came across that video and it, it it made me even more excited
0: for something that I was already jacked up to do. There was a video not from us and not from the GCsaa. It was a barstool sports video that I think a lot of folks saw in advance of the U.S. Open of winged foot and the job that the crew up there did in advance of that major event. And it got even my friends who love golf but have never really talked with me about course maintenance. It got them talking and it got them appreciative of all the hard work put in on courses So maybe this is more of a trend, whether it's promotional or even in the event where a media source uh, produces this. But maybe this is a trend where superintendents or or other turf heads are actively involved in promoting the course. Again, it's not for everybody. Not everybody's comfortable in front of the camera. But maybe there will be more folks doing this in the years to come. It could be exciting.
1: I know superintendents personally who have uh, received promotions or even new head jobs partially because of an article or a video or a podcast that they were in I don't know of any superintendent that was terminated because they were in an article
0: no no so it can help your career too tell, telling your facility story I can think of a handful of clubs with with uh, policies that don't allow their their folks to speak and that might lead to termination and that's the you know the one percent of one percent oh tiny clubs tiny percent, yeah Anything else from Jason and Stonewall that you want to talk about?
1: It just made you realize when you do work at the resort level, and I, I've been fortunate to visit a lot of these resorts, is that you're really m- much more than a golf course superintendent. You have to really think about the big picture. And the golf course is just one of many reasons that people go to a place like Stonewall Resort. I mean, there's there's uh, great lodging there. There's hiking trails. There's kayaking there's an outdoor pool there there they're fire pits there there's a marina with boats there's a a Mm. campground there are playgrounds and you you, when when you when you work at a place like that the the big resort you really have to think how the golf course plays into the bigger picture if you think the golf course is the center of the world at a place like that you you may not you may not lasts that long. It, you really have to think big picture at a big resort like that. And, and if you meet the, the Kelly Shoemates at the Greenbrier and the Bob Farrins at, at Pinehurst, and we, we come across a lot of them, and Sean Emerson at Desert Mountain and, and Larry Napore at Firestone Country Club, these really big multi-course facilities where there's a lot going on, you realize that they one of the reasons they're so successful is that they see the golf course into the big picture and they don't think the golf course is the only thing that, that exists.
0: Your other two spots in West Virginia, the Pete Dye Golf Club with Tony Kowalski, the only Pete Dye course with Pete Dye's name on it, and Bridgeport Country Club with Steve Marnick. And you tweeted about these trips, and you posted photos because you always tweet and post photos when you're on the road. But we haven't really talked a lot about the clubs specifically, so I'm looking forward to hearing about Pete Dye Golf Club uh, and Bridgeport Country Club. I think Pete Dye was your first of those two chronologically.
1: Yeah, so I visited uh Stonewall Resort on a Thursday morning, and then my afternoon visit was at Pete Dye Golf Club. They're about 35 minutes away from each other, and we pretty much went um, when it was daylight at Stonewall Resort, and there was still frost on the ground to dusk at Pete Dye Golf Club. I and mean, mm-hmm. those are two places that are incredible and took a lot of time to see. And Matt, so Pete Dye... Golf Club is a place that I've always wanted to see. I've been a person that studied Pete Dye since the Mystic Rock course at Nemicolon Resort was built in the uh, mid 1990s, about an hour from my hometown in Western Pennsylvania. And I remember when it was such a big deal that that Pete Dye was building a, a golf course in Western Pennsylvania, and that course was built uh, Mystic Rock right after the Pete Dye Golf Club opened in. Bridgeport, West Virginia. So I'd heard stories about the Pete Dye Golf Club, and I knew that it was probably pretty damn good if it had Pete's name on it, right? Like Pete wouldn't let somebody put his name <laughs> on a course that was just pedestrian. And then, probably. you know, I've always filed that away in my my memory. And I remember uh, I read "Bury Me in a Pot Bunker" when I was a teenager, and the, the 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 chapter about the Pete Dye Golf Club might be the most entertaining chapter in that book. And that book is just completely entertaining. And then, you know, sort of drifted away from a bit from it a bit when I went to college and then got into daily sports writing. And then when I came back to the golf course industry or came to golf course industry and landed, landed a position here in 2014, I, I I kept on thinking, I got to get to the Pete Dye golf club one day. I I have to get there. You know, I just remember reading about it as a, as a teenager and hearing just what a surreal type place it was. And, uh, you know, it, it took six, six years. It's not the easiest place to get to, but I, I got there and I had high expectations because I'm also a big history nut and I study labor history and the Pete Dye Golf Club's built on a former coal mine site Mm -hmm. in northern West Virginia. So there's a lot going on there with a Pete Dye design, you know, built on a, a site where Let's face it; a lot of people's working lives were were spent mining coal there. So you kind of combine, you know, the, the the history with the golf side of it. And I just was so excited to, to get there. I had incredibly high expectations, and you know, spending that afternoon with Tony Kowalski, who's you know completing his second season as superintendent, he replaced the uh, legendary Gary Grandstaff, who retired in early 2019. I mean, my time with Tony and seeing that golf course exceeded expectations. Like if I was expecting the that afternoon to be a, a 10 it was like a 19.5 i mean it was just incredible and that was coming uh, after stonewall resort which was also an awesome golf course in the morning but the petai golf club is one of the most not only one of the most unique golf courses i've ever seen it's one of the most unique places
0: i've ever been in my life so i know there's the the mine ride on the course but what else makes petai golf club so unique Every hole
1: is memorable. Every hole is different. And Tony Kowalski mentioned this to me uh, early in the tour. He goes, guy, you know what? There's not a hole out here that's not memorable. And he's absolutely right. You know, from 1 to 18, it just – you want to see the net. You get done with one, and you want to like relish what you just saw. But you know there's another one to see, and it was just so amazing going hole to hole, and and seeing how that land was was used. And you have Simpson Creek running through the property, and then you have all these. Uh, you have a lake. You know the, the fourth hole is a par three that plays over the this lake there and it's it just such a such a cool sight and then the fifth hole you know the tees are right by that lake and you, you have a power plant as an aiming point and it's a par five that's along the creek and has all this you know man-made mounting that you knew that pete and his people did and then just you, you get to the green on the fifth hole and it's just just this incredible undulation green i mean you could call every green there an incredibly undulating you know Imagining of green and it just everything there is just so unique. uh It, it took them 16 years to build the the golf mm. course. I mean, the stories of that course being constructed with um, the founder James Larosa and Pete Dye and their back and forth over the years are just legendary. And that place really does. There's a chapter in Bury Me in the Pot Bunker about it. But if there was ever a golf course, and this golf course isn't even 30 years old yet, that needs a book written about it. And an oral history. Th- this would be the one, of course. You know, Pete Dye passes away uh, this year, and I. So he's a key person in it. That's not around to be able to recount that story. But so anyone that worked with Pete Dye over that decade plus stretch spent time in Bridgeport. West Virginia on, on this site, and the site had incredible challenges, but it had incredible charms. I mean, there are, uh, you mentioned the mine shaft. So yeah, when you go between the sixth and seventh hole, you drive through uh, the restored mine, and then you see all these like rock walls, and you see these holes in the rock wall, and you just kind of think of what, what happened there. It's this awesome private golf course, right? One of the best golf courses, probably not only in the United States, but in the world in a lot of people's minds, and you you think about that and the people that have so much enjoyment and relaxation there, but then you think about what it used to be and the people mm-hmm. going to work underground for 12, 13, 14 hours a day, six, seven days a week, and you're like, oh my goodness, it makes you realize how lucky you are to just be on the, the other side of the ground there, right, instead of beneath it, and uh, so much going on. Uh, they do things to make it better. To- Tony, uh, this is his first head superintendent job. He was uh, second in command at Wilmington, Delaware Country Club. Uh, just a great young superintendent who's done a lot with it. Uh, you know, he, he, the unfortunate thing about him is he takes the job in 2000. In 2000- 19 and pete Dye passes away in 2020 so he's the superintendent responsible for maintaining the only course that named after pete Dye, and he never had a chance to meet pete Dye. he certainly yeah. heard a lot of stories about him and you know he's doing an unbelievable job to carry on that legacy he's implemented uh some programs that have made the course play a bit bit firmer he's done a lot of work on approaches this year and it, really it's the it's what pete intended it to be uh you know, 26 years or 25 years after after it opened, it still plays like that. And, you know, Tony still has, has a good relationship with Gary staff who lives in the community there, and the, they chat about what's going on. And it's just one of those places you have to see. I mean, there, there's still some sulfuric water running through the property, so it's got that orangish, you know, tint to it. And you're thinking, this can't possibly be be real but it is real. I mean there's a hole where uh, there's water that flows underneath a, a green it rests above some of the the old mine water and then it, the water comes out and forms a waterfall by the 10th green and just things like that throughout the property and uh like I said every single hole is you don't know what it's going to see and it seems like the type of golf course that you could play every day for decades and learn something different about it. And Matt, as we got off of the 18th hole, we only live about what three hours and ten minutes from Bridgeport, West Virginia. Right? Yeah. You, you know, I was almost ready to run into the clubhouse, find the membership director, and sign up for a national membership. It's that it's that type of place when you go visit it. <laughs> you did mention that this morning. Maybe if our boss is listening, he can get us a corporate membership, corporate national membership there, Chris. Maybe one day we can have a golf course industry event
0: at Pete Dye Golf Club, Chris. If you're listening, pay attention to Guy. You're. We can dream, right? Your last stop in West Virginia, because I feel like you could talk about, like you said, any of these courses for a full episode, but we have three more to get through. Bridgeport Country Club uh, with Steve Marnick, another great course in that state. What did you see there? What jumped out to you on your third of three course visits? So my plan West was Virginia?
1: to speak at the conference on a Wednesday and you know spend all day at the conference in Morgantown, and then on Thursday, go to Stonewall Resort and Pete Dye Golf Club. And then on Friday, I was going to take a personal day and maybe uh, do some hiking or some bike riding and just sort of – enjoy a Friday in West Virginia. I mean, the, the weather was perfect. It was in the 70s. Maybe I was going to go explore some small towns. Maybe I'd go find a random golf course and play nine holes. But I met a gentleman named Steve Marnick at the at the conference. And he asked me, you know, how long are you going to be in West Virginia for? And where are you going to be? And I mentioned that on Thursday, I was going to Stonewall Resort and Pete Dye Golf Club. And I had a hotel room Thursday night in Clarksburg. And he goes, well, you'll be right by the golf course I work. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I go, well, where do you work? He goes, Bridgeport Country Club. And it turns out Bridgeport Country Club is right across the street, almost from Pete Dye Golf Club. Bridgeport Country Club is a is a private club. It's more of the community course in Bridgeport, where Pete Dye Golf Club sort of has that national and regional membership. So uh, I said, Steve, sure, I'd love to come over. I'm honored that you'd give me the invite. You know, I'd love to, I'd love to see the golf course. I knew it was a mid 1950s uh, James Harrison design. James Harrison did some courses in Western PA near where I I grew up. So. Uh, yeah, spent Friday morning with Steve, and what, what a wonderful uh, you know, 70, almost 70-year-old 70 golf course, uh, Parkland-style, but not over-cluttered with trees, uh, very, very uh, hilly, but I wouldn't say it's too severe. The, the, the Harrison, with his routing, did a great job of making the most severe uh, elevation changes on the par threes instead of the par fours and fives. So actually a lot more flat lies out of Bridgeport Country Club than you would th- think there would be. Uh, just really uh, tight, strategic type golf course. Uh, actually, actually, after we did our our tour, I ended up staying longer, and Steve and I went out and played nine holes with some members and met some great people. And uh, what a cool club! And the club's doing well. They're close to three hundred members. Uh, it's in a good financial position. They they rebuilt some greens, I, I believe, eight years ago on the on the front nine. I think they're getting ready to do some bunker work and, and this is Steve Marnick's second run as superintendent there. What an interesting uh person. He he graduated from Edinburgh University in the uh I believe in the 1980s and worked in the restaurant industry and then went to landscape and then got into golf when he was in Jacksonville, Florida and then you know, moved around. He's from Western PA and ended up at, at Snowshoe Resort in West Virginia, and then the Bridgeport Country Club, then went back into sales. He sold, I think, everything you could almost sell in the golf industry. He's worked uh, with chemical sales, furt sales, uh, sand, sold sand, uh, recently worked for a John Deere distributorship uh, between his stints at Bridgeport Country Club, and now he's back at Bridgeport Country Club doing great things. His crew's around uh, nine employees, very, very loyal group of workers there, uh, you know, easygoing, Uh, membership you know these are the people that that live in Bridgeport and you know maybe own small businesses or or you know work for for the school district so that it's really the community hub there Uh, a lot of community events are hosted there I don't even think you have to be a member if you wanted to host like a prom or a graduation or that type of thing there although it's a private golf club obviously they've been hit this year by some of the things going on with COVID-19 but on on the golf side they're having a a great season and just just one of those quaint charming small town country clubs and glad that I, I took steve up on that offer i guess i can go hiking when, when whenever uh of course i don't live in west virginia or i could go bike riding whenever but i can't spend a morning and an afternoon with a passionate superintendent like that all the time so definitely made the right call and it was good to see uh that type of facility because i really saw three contrasting facilities in west virginia and that helps us do our job i saw a a resort that's a uh, part of a state park operated by a management company, saw a golf course that has more of a national and regional membership, and then saw the, the, the local country club down there. So it was great to get those uh,
0: contrasting experiences. And what a career and what a perspective for Steve Marnick. I imagine that we will be hearing more from him at some point, whether it's 2021 or 2022 or beyond uh but I want to hear more from and about him. What a career.
1: Oh and I you know, going back to, to one other thing that happened during this trip, so when we were on the ninth green at Pete Dye Golf Club, uh Tony Kowalski's assistant superintendent, uh, a young man named Cody Fry who recently worked at Pikewood National And he joined Tony's team this year as the first assistant, came over and said hello to us. And we had a great chat on the green about the industry and young people coming into it. And Cody mentioned that he listens to Superintendent Radio Network. So, Cody, if you're listening, I really enjoyed meeting you. Uh, Hopefully we get a chance to chat again. And congrats
0: to you and Tony and the team for everything that you've accomplished this year. And to all of the rest of you for listening, thank you very much for listening. And make sure you download the new episodes of Greens with Envy and Tartan Talks and Off the Course and Beyond the Page as they come out. The download numbers, the listenership really helps helps us uh, continue to do these podcasts. Well, so. congrats
1: to all of our readers, what they've accomplished this year. I mean, they've faced some extraordinary well, yeah, challenges and extraordinary amounts of play. And the, the, the products are just awesome out there. So congrats to everybody,
0: just not the team at the Pete Dye Golf Club. Yeah. But I wanted to give a shout out to Cody if he's listening. And to all of you for listening in general. Uh, A couple of weeks ago now, you went back to your home state where you grew up, Pennsylvania, and you visited two courses there. One, well, both beautiful courses, but one probably a little more emotional than the other. You went to Fox Chapel Golf Club. Let's start with Fox Chapel Golf Club.
1: Yeah, big restoration just completed there. Tom Marzoff of Fazio Design. Recently completed a, a a restoration and got Fox Chapel back to its Seth Rayner look and feel. Seth Raynor worked there uh, shortly before he died in the 1920s, and it, it's got the template holes right. Like you have a Biarritz there, and a, you have a Rodan, and a and an Eden, and a punch bowl, and it's uh I believe it's the only Seth Raynor design in the state of Pennsylvania. I, I think that's the case. So it was great to see that. I actually did a little bit of caddying there as a teenager. I primarily caddied at the next course we're going to talk to, but I latched on with some good players and got to caddy Fox Chapel a bit. And it had been over 20 years since I'd been there. And I was, you know, you're a teenager, right? So you don't really know what great golf course architecture is. You, you have an idea of what a cool golf course is, but I think most teenagers are uh, more interested in the eye candy out there than, than, <laughs> the, than the architecture, right? Like you just want to see the, the the green grass and the white sand. And you, you really – golf course architecture, I think, is something that you develop appreciation for as you get older. And now that I'm – 40. I feel like I appreciate it more now than I did when I was even 39. I don't know. Somehow that one year's made a huge y- difference. Well,
0: you're a man. You're 40.
1: Yeah, yeah. Mike Gundy if you're listening. Yeah, we're 40 now. So I don't we're, think he is. we're we're in a different uh subset, but uh, Fox Chapel it was cool to see the changes and uh you know, look for a story on that. I I got a chance to speak with uh Superintendent Jason Herwitz and Tom Marzoff and we're going to have a story on it and there's some really cool features there and with that story, we're going to get into how some of those uh, golden age template type features are maintained. A lot's been made of them, but we're really gonna we really pick the brains of Jason and Tom to to learn about the functionality of those features and what it takes to preserve them.
0: And Tom Marzolf, the most recent guest on Tartan Talks, episode number fifty two. In case you want to dive a little bit more into his career. Uh, Guy talked with him uh, just a couple of weeks ago. That episode dropped on October 26.
1: Two weeks ago, we were in the same studio talking to Tom. What
0: a wonderful conversation. Your other Pennsylvania course visit, again, a little more emotional, a little deeper cut uh, even than Fox Chapel, and that's Chartier's Country Club. And how much time do you think you've spent on Chartier's in your life? That's an
1: interesting question because the place is meant A lot to me, but I had not been to it for two decades because of just going to college and moving away from Western PA and you know establishing a a career and just you know didn't have a chance to really go back. But Chartiers Country Club is where I I grew up caddying. It's the closest golf course, private golf course, to downtown Pittsburgh. So it was really a club where a lot of the uh, the business people in the city uh, back in the day and even still today. Would get away and play, you know, nine or eighteen holes in the afternoon, or or go to lunch, you know, in the grill or in the main dining room. So it's that type of club, uh, Golden Age Club. I think nineteen twenty three will be the centennial, nineteen twenty two or nineteen twenty three. So it's approaching its hundred year anniversary. Uh, just this, just this uh, awesome Tudor style clubhouse. And my grandfather was a member too at the the course so it's really looking forward to going back they're working on a bunker project now with our friend steve Forrest, who we we spent some time with earlier this year at at forest uh and smith and hills architecture firm and you know art hills worked on the course in the early 1990s and steve Forrest was a part of that project and now steve Forrest gets to go back and you know lead this bunker restoration that they're doing and here's the crazy thing so not only is steve Forrest of you know the art hills firm working there 30 years later. They have the same contractor too, Aspen. So Ronnie Atkins was there and Richard Hagee from Aspen and Steve Force came in for my visit and uh, Bob Davis, the director of uh, golf course maintenance and he's also the COO of the club and Superintendent Ben Hewitt were there and we we had this... uh, And the club president, Ron Muller, showed up. Turns out the club president, Ron Muller, knew my grandfather and was telling me some uh, funny late night stories involving my grandfather that I had no idea that existed. So we sat in the, uh, the grill room for about an hour and a half, just telling stories, you know, me interviewing them for the uh, story about the bunker restoration. Then we went out and saw the golf course and I would say the clubhouse and the, the whole driving of the club, exactly how I remembered it. Hmm. And then you get on the golf course and the holes and the routing were how I remembered it, but a lot's been done on that golf course in the last 20 years. A lot of trees removed, some native areas added, uh, before Bob Davis took the the, the club management role, and he's still heavily involved in the agronomics and turf side. Uh, He did a lot of things to move that golf course forward. He he came from Oakmont, and the superintendent – before him, Darren Batitsky did a lot of things to move that golf course forward, and uh, yeah, but you get out and you, you, the holes were exactly where I remembered them being. There were some, you know, trees that I thought were questionable when I caddied still out there that they just can't quite push through for the removal. We won't talk too much about those. Don't but, get so emotionally but, connected to trees. But it, but it'll change the and the course is changing, and this, this bunker project is really the the biggest thing that's been on done on the course since the. Art Hill, Steve Forest restoration or renovation in the early 1990s. And it was really emotional being there for me. You know, you try not to be the story. It's really about the people you discuss and the facilities that you visit. But uh, it it was pretty emotional. I had trouble sleeping the night before because I was just wondering how I was going to feel. And uh, no, just so many good memories there. You met a lot of great people caddying you were outdoors you were doing something you loved as a child and i spent a lot of time with my grandfather and father there too so one of those places that was really um a big part of my my life for five or six years there and then you go to college you go away you you move from it and it was great to reconnect and i'm sure we'll get down there again in the spring when the project is complete and uh just what a wonderful story it's going to be and uh you know ron moeller the club president uh just had some great uh anecdotes for me about how projects get pushed through at clubs at that level and really you know help me understand how the decisions are made and it was great that the you know the key players in the in the architecture and design side and construction side showed up for that that morning and we had a wonderful round table and you know it, it was just one of those things where you just go around and you're like wow uh, you know, things have changed a lot since since your childhood or teenage years but then the property hasn't really changed that much. I mean, the clubhouse is still the defining feature when you come up the 18th fairway, and it's just the I'll put. Some, I put some pictures of it online, and we'll run some with the story. It's just one of those awesome Tudor-style clubhouses, and the and the golf courses are Willie Park Junior design, and they're going to bring mm-hmm. back some of his intent with the bunker project. And it's gone through some changes over the years, but it still feels like you're stepping back in time when you go to Shark Tours Country Club, and it's just a very a special place you don't hear a lot about it because there's some big name clubs in the Pittsburgh area I mean most notably Oakmont Country Club gets sure. a lot of the attention in Pittsburgh and then Fox Chapel Golf Club gets a lot of attention and especially now after this project and Laurel Valley you know has hosted uh, the PGA Championship and a Ryder Cup and that's not too far from Pittsburgh but there's so many places like Shark Tears Country Club out there that that have meant a lot to the people that you know were members there or the people that even Work there, and I'm not sure that you know I would be the person that I am today. I'm not saying I'm this great person, but a lot of you know my values and how I interact with people and my work ethic were really developed in the early stages there at Chartier's Country Club.
0: And it's probably easier for a golf course to remain locked in time a little more than the world in general, the world as a whole. But still, to be able to go back to a course 20 or even 25 years later and feel like, with the exception of some minor changes here or there, you are walking back to the exact same time when you were growing up, that's special, and that's something that you can't get with a lot of experiences. You know, ballparks change, parks change, uh, the, the world in general, the house where you grew up, not you particularly, but just in general – all this stuff changes. You can't freeze time, but it's nice to be able to go back on a course and feel like time has frozen a little bit.
1: Yeah, I can't go back to Three Rivers Stadium where I had a lot of great childhood <laughs> memories because <laughs> they blew up the damn place in, in 2000.
0: So many 2000. of those cookie-cutter stadiums from the 70s and 80s. I can't go
1: back to where my uh, high school golf team played its home matches because Rolling Hills Country Club no longer exists. That's where they're going to build the new uh, – Peters Township High School. In fact, uh, Tony Kowalski, the superintendent at Pete Dye Golf Club spent a year as the assistant superintendent at Rolling Hills Country Club, which is where my high school golf team played its home matches. Now, he was there well, he's younger than I am, so he was there well after our, you know, my group that came through played for Peters Township but it seems like everybody's interconnected in this industry and mm-hmm. that was one example you know hey going around with a uh, superintendent at, a, at an awesome golf course in West Virginia and you know he used to be the assistant at the course one of the courses that I grew up playing a lot what a fun trip yeah. what a fun
0: trip anything else from Pennsylvania or West Virginia before we wrap that you want to talk about guy nothing that we can say on the air oh okay Well, for Mr. Explicit himself, Guy Cipriano, the editor-in-chief of Golf Course Industry Magazine. No, no, no. Okay. Okay. Let me
1: take that back. Nothing that we're allowed to disclose. It's nothing explicit, but we saw some other super fascinating things in Western Pennsylvania that we are not at liberty to talk about.
0: Well, fair enough. I have signed one NDA just this calendar year myself, so I get it.
1: I, I didn't sign an NDA, but it's more a uh, a trust system here. <laughs> <laughs> well, from- nothing bad, all good stuff, but uh wish we could talk about it and you know some of it you may see and pick up on in the, the coming months. There's always stuff in the pipeline. Matt's really trying to pry this out of me right now, but i um, I my lips are sealed. Well, not literally, but No, I don't know. Anyone that works with me knows that my lips aren't really sealed that often.
0: <laughs> We have gone off the rails in the last two minutes. Welcome to
1: Golf Course Industry, where things do go off the rails quite frequently when we're in the office.
0: (laughs) For Guy, my lips are sealed. Cipriano, the editor in chief of Golf Course Industry Magazine. I'm Matt Lowell, the magazine's managing editor. You are listening to Greens with Envy on the Superintendent Radio Network, and thank you so much for doing so. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Off the Course, where we talk with superintendents and other turf pros about anything not their job. Guy will be back with a new episode number 53 of Tartan Talks in 2 weeks and Beyond the Page: The Turf Heads Takeover edition will be on the podcast on our website 3 weeks from today. Until then, again, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for continuing to download new episodes and old episodes on the Superintendent Radio Network. And if you are so disposed, if you like what we're doing and you want to give us a rate or a review, that would be as always greatly appreciated again i'm matt luell alongside guy cipriano thanks so much for listening
1: thanks everybody and fill out those state of the industry surveys please
0: i want to go back to west virginia I want to go back to the one I love Where the skies are blue and the birds sing too Take me back to West Virginia They took me away from West Virginia They took me away
1: from my home sweet home Where the friends I knew were so kind and true Take me back to West Virginia Where the fields are filled with clover. When the mountains reach the sky Where the flowers bloom all over